Hi, and welcome to the audio podcast element of the Money Shop Project. My name is Sarah Lee Newman, and I'm an artist, art educator, and facilitator. The Money Shop Project is part of the Central St. Martin's MA Applied Imagination and has been working over the last couple of years towards examining the relationship between sex ed and porn. When starting to look at the roots of a rise of sexual harassment and assault in our schools, it became clear very quickly what a huge influence porn has. The average first age to see hardcore internet porn is 9 to 11 years old. Porn is where and how most children and adults learn about sex. The difference in early experiences of parents who grew up without the internet and their digital native kids is vast. Pornhub has been described as the third largest cultural influencer on our society ever, after Google and Amazon. And it gets more hits per month than Amazon, Netflix and Twitter combined, further heightened with the effects of COVID-19 as we shifted our lives even more online. And yet we don't talk about this. We see the effects of it creeping in, but for many reasons it's hard to confront. Few people really consider the power and effect the huge online tube sites have. They go virtually unregulated, facilitate abuse of adults and children, are closely linked to sex trafficking, addiction and depression, and have been proven to cause a dehumanised view of women and girls when watched excessively. But there is also a growing world of ethical, feminist, equality and pleasure-focused pornography that has a strong community of producers, performers and consumers around it. The Money Shop Project asks questions of what happens when porn replaces proper informed sex education, as well as how we can support parents in having those difficult but very important discussions with our kids. Artworks and creative process are used to facilitate this vital discourse, running sex ed for parents workshops, collage and making events, and we're now putting together an exhibition. To go alongside this show, we have interviewed sex educators from different fields, and we look at artworks reflecting some of these themes as a jumping off point. So this is me in conversation with Avril Louise Clark, a sexologist and intimacy coordinator for pioneering feminist porn producer and director Erica Lust. Based in Barcelona, Avril is heading up Lust's newest initiative, a sex ed platform called The Porn Conversation, that gives great practical advice and tips for both parents and educational settings on the ever difficult task of talking to kids about pornography. We look at the work of painter Betty Tompkins, performance artist Leah Schrager, and photographs by Marilyn Minter and Maisie Cousins. So how are you, everyone? I'm good. I'm a little bit sick, I'm not going to lie. So I have water and cough drops and everything next to me. So I don't think I'll cough at all, but if I do, I'm sorry. But I think I'm at the end of it, hopefully. Oh, well, thank you for still um, agreeing to do this. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, so I thought um, we'd just maybe start with a little chat with you about um, yourself and how you got into this kind of work and a little bit about um, the Corn Conversation and Erica Lust and all the platforms and kind of, you know, again, how you came into it, what's sort of happening now, what you think the sort of um, vision for it in the future will be. So I'm Avril, and I'm a clinical sexologist. Um, I'm originally from Miami, but I'm Barcelona-based. And I, I, being a sexologist is fun because I can wear many different hats. So I do different kinds of jobs as far as working mainly in education um, and also a bit of therapy, too. Um, I guess how I got into this line of work was through... Being a, a teenager and growing up in a 
space where I didn't really have access and availability to sex education myself. I grew up in a very Irish Catholic household. My parents were immigrants to the U.S. in the 80s and not only the U.S., but Miami. So I grew up in a very over-sexualized, hyper-sexualized, I want to say, city um, in a very conservative state with not a lot of sex education. So my friends and I decided to create a group when we were in high school called the HIV AIDS Awareness Club. And through that, we brought sex educators and sexologists into our school and we went on excursions outside school to learn. And um, it really kind of made a big impact on my life and how I decided to go into this line of work myself. Um, As far as since getting my degree in clinical sexology, Um, I started off doing workshops and mainly like adult education workshops. And I organized some throughout Europe and the U.S., uh, not only for myself, but for other educators as well, just trying to bring education into local communities in a fun and interactive way. And then eventually I linked up with Erica Lust, um, who is an ethical adult producer and director from Barcelona. And now I work with her as an intimacy coordinator on set of her productions. Um, And then also I am the project manager of her nonprofit project, The Foreign Conversation, which is a nonprofit project that creates and provides free and easily accessible tools for educators and families to talk to their young people in their lives about sex Um, beginning with the topic of porn literacy. So it's a really, really great project to be a part of. Um, We just launched the university student ambassador program. So we're like gaining a lot more um, attention from the universities because I do think it's kind of a conversation that doesn't really have an age limit essentially. So like, even though yes, it's for families and educators and young people, I'm always like, well, it's really good that through this, Older people or adults or university age students are also learning from it as well and applying porn literacy to their own lives. Um, so that's kind of like a mini version of, of who I am and how I got here and what I do and what I'm involved in. Yeah, amazing. And I think what you're saying as well about the university age kids is is so relevant. Like I've been having a similar sort of moment um here with what I'm doing in terms of like my research and work over the last couple of years with this project has been very much like parents and children but I feel like the sort of uh that sort of Gen Z early 20s um that that generation are almost like becoming the kind of key to like bridging that gap I think because uh they just have so much more like vocabulary to talk about this stuff they're just so much more like immersed in it um, and then, of course, because they are digital natives, I think that's the bigger, the biggest sort of um, key thing that sets them apart when you're trying to, you know, you're trying to talk to parents and older, uh, an older generation about these issues. Like their experiences are so completely different from the experiences of their children that actually young people are the way to kind of bridge that gap and learn about what it is to kind of yeah, be a digital native and grow up in this in, uh, online environment. So this is a painting by Betty Tompkins. It's a uh, masturbation painting number two from 2009. And this is part of her 
uh, ongoing series um, called Fuck Paintings, which was started around sort of 1969, 1970, after she had graduated, um, where she was really fascinated with using images from um, her husband's pornography, um, which is really interesting because the, she was, I was reading a piece where she was describing how they used to have to trek to Canada to go and get it. So they would do these like, or he rather would do these like very specific trips to drive hundreds of miles up to the Canadian border where he had a, like a, a PO box or whatever, where he would then collect the porn that was, you know, the printed magazines that had been sent there. Um, and then smuggle them back into the States. And I think that really highlights the 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 massive difference between our experiences of accessibility to pornography now and what people used to go through to kind of to get that. I mean, if you sort of describe that now, it just sounds absolutely in, like absurd that, that someone would do that, um, like go to those lengths. And I also think uh, I wanted to use this image of masturbation because I think it is um, probably one of the first kind of conversations that comes up when you're a parent talking to your children about them sort of exploring their bodies and sex and uh, a little bit because that tends to be the you know the first realm is like yeah they're exploring themselves and so that's where that conversation about your body or what you're doing or perhaps like um the sort of appropriateness of where you're doing it uh comes into play and even at that beginning sort of um of the conversation my work with parents has really shown like a lot of people then suddenly kind of have that moment where they realize oh you know when I had this conversation with my parent it didn't go well or they said something that made me embarrassed or I was shamed in some way and that can really set like a a real kind of groundwork for or not a groundwork, sorry like a foundation of um uh of feeling very uncomfortable about talking about these things or perhaps remembering your own uncomfortable um uncomfortable kind of feelings about it uh, and also because I wanted to just kind of open up this conversation about uh, the relationship between porn and sex ed. Um, so like, what is the impact when pornography has overtaken sex ed in our culture and how we can sort of build healthy relationships with porn, which is obviously a huge part of the porn conversation itself. And um, I also think these images from Betty Tompkins are, are interesting too because she was very um, sort of rejected by a lot of um, her peers in the 70s, the second wave of feminist movement, because she was being seen as kind of being pro-porn and a huge amount of the kind of feminist uh, discourse in that time was very sort of, there was a big divide between um, people being very anti-pornography of any kind or being, you know, more pro it. And that was a real, like, dividing factor within feminist discourse. And I think, I don't know that that's necessarily gone now, but I think people's um, view of pornography has shifted hugely and that obviously impacts the conversation. Um, so, yeah, so maybe um, just let me know what you think about the image, if you're familiar with her work at all. Um, and... Um, yeah, also this is a cropped image, Betty Tompkins has a lot of like close-up shots of um, scenes from the pornography magazines and sort of cuts out all the heads and the arms and the legs, you can't really, they're abstracted to a point. Um, I think it's interesting because we could maybe make some parallels between kind of the, the kind of dehumanisation in sort of gonzo internet porn of, of mostly the women, but also kind of bodies in general. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm not familiar with her work at all. So I think that background story is really interesting. Um, I think it does um, really bring up a lot of, of conversations we can have with this as far as like the history and, and the, the facts behind the artist and, and, you know, getting access to pornography in a way that 
it's so different than the the access that we have today um, through free online porn, right? Which is probably the most accessible pornography available to people and young people and people of all ages, to be honest. Absolutely. At this time. Um, whereas I think it like also makes me wonder about like how we define porn in general, especially when we're bringing art into it. Because if you do think about, I don't know, the Kama Sutra and they go into any kind of historical museum, you start to see very erotic imagery every once in a while. And you think like, well, was the, is this porn? You know, um, and so as we've moved forward in history and kind of like, kind of like boxed in what exactly pornography is, which is right now, if I say the word porn, most people will probably think of, um, depending on the generation, of course, um, you probably think of like the tube sites of porn, right? The free videos that are available online that are extremely accessible, um, that typically can be quite hardcore or misogynistic in, 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 in the context. But I mean, we can go into that as well, mm -hmm. uh, the topics and themes that come up when you view, view porn. Um, but no, I, th I think it's like very interesting. That was kind of like what came to mind when you were telling the story about like driving across the border to pick up porn. And I think about, well, like hasn't porn always existed though? And I think like um, there's just a lot to unpick there as far as like, what, how do you divide and draw the line between what is art and what is pornography? Um, because this is beautiful, honestly, this imagery. And so I do think like, you know, you brought up the topic of masturbation as well and with young people and um, families kind of wondering how they can approach this topic. And I think the best way to do it, I mean, obviously based on, on your own family values and how you wish to approach it as like a parent. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's true. It, it can be kind of like the first time where your your child might become more aware of um, what's pleasurable to touch on their bodies, and um, you know, children in in some ways are becoming more connected and are sexual beings in their own rights, as far as like understanding and growing into how they wish to explore that one day if and when they're they're ready, right? So you do start to understand that certain types of touch feels good, and self touch can feel good. And um, I think that as far as discussing it in a shame-free way is really important. Not to say that, you know, you should be masturbating or touching yourself in the middle of your classroom or in front of your friends, right? It's something that deserves privacy. Um, and I think that as far as like we use it as an opportunity to kind of open up the conversation around pleasure, around bodily autonomy, around consent. There's so much you can go off of that uh, as a topic with a child and with um, a young person in your life. It's just making sure that they feel supported and not shamed because there's many, many times as a sexologist and as a, a young person myself, where I did feel shamed about just being curious and um, knowing that also, well, maybe if I didn't get caught or called out for touching myself, that makes myself feel good. Or um, it, it wasn't, it also like a, a occurs to you, me and, and to young people that, well, if no one's talking about it, it yeah. must be bad, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so 
it's um it can be really confusing so i i really much think that um it's a conversation worth having uh with any young person yeah i really love your use of the word deserves privacy um because i think it's very easy to sort of in that moment like panic and just be like no you have to you know you have to do that somewhere else or you, you know the language that we use can be like it's a you know it's something you should be hiding away doing um and yeah. it, it being something that deserves it's like you just you know you deserve that nice time and that nice feeling um but there's also like a uh a boundary around it that's really interesting and also how like we sort of you know particularly for girls we just don't talk about masturbation for girls really at all whereas like masturbation for boys is kind of a joke um and so it, i think it's really yeah it's really important to try to really think about our language around these things um and um yeah shame is just so easily embedded so quickly so quickly yeah and it's something that we are really careful to to put into practice when we are creating the porn conversation materials like we have a whole section on like uh not using shaming language what would that sound like um just very very careful wording is of course also to be to be gender inclusive as well when you talk about masturbation um and also to be I don't know there's there's so many things when we talk to young people that we don't realize the vocabulary that we're using can be extremely like heteronormative as well mm -hmm. right yeah like assuming all children are just straight <laughs> and so it doesn't really give much room for for a child to feel like they can have these conversations where they don't feel judged or shamed they feel kind of like they can grow up in environments to be themselves and and that it's okay to be curious and, and it's okay to ask questions um and yeah, that they deserve to to hear, um, I don't know, helpful information, mm -hmm. uh, supportive information. Yeah, I think we talk about virginity in such a heteronormative way as well. Like when we first sort of start having those conversations with young people, or or often the way that it's all depicted, particularly in like I don't I don't know necessarily if it's the same way now, but like when I was a teenager, you know, the the whole you know in media and films and everything it was all about like yeah, losing your virginity and. Uh, popping that cherry and it being a very yeah like heteronormative penetrating act and that it's we still use that language around it and that kind of um build up of it being this kind of before and after um right. which just yeah which is obviously really limiting and just doesn't apply it is very yeah heteronormative it's assuming one particular sex act that you know out of millions <laughs> and that we would still consider our children very sexually active if they were doing all kinds of other things aside from that um but we just put so much weight on that one particular uh sort of act or moment of doing it uh pardon the pun um, no, that's a, no that's a really that's a really good point and i actually thought about the term popping uh, someone's cherry recently and i was just like i'm so glad i haven't heard that phrase in so long yes, yes <laughs> i really yes. hope it's, it's like going moving out and never to be used again yeah, I think young people, again, with this, you know, the languages and the vocabulary that they have to talk about these things, I feel that they don't view it in that way. And it's very much, you know, it's, again, it's really interesting because it's with the work that I've been doing, looking at, you know, sort of these Gen, um, Gen X and sort of millennial parents. It's like what it, it's interesting to see because it's like the language that we're using to talk to our children isn't necessarily, the, you know, the language they will then adopt to talk about it. So it's all kind of shifting and ever evolving yeah 
Yeah, exactly. And and that's why I think it's okay. First, like, in, in, in our, I mean, I, I keep talking about the porn conversation, but it's kind of like our baby. But um, when, when um, the, the reason why we kind of developed it to be kind of like a, a, a guide, as far as like, there's like speaking points and what to say, what not to say is because I just think there is so much like oversaturation of like, articles and information out there on the website about like, on, the, on all websites, right, about, um, or the internet, wow, I don't know how to speak today either, um, about kind of like what you should say to your kids, when you should do it, how you, like, but there's never really like, well, how do you do it, and how do you do it thoughtfully, and then also like, how do you do it in a way where um, you can also insert your own family values, like it's very much, um, doesn't really give space for a lot of nuance either, um, so also understanding that, you know, you might go to talk to your child about masturbation or porn or whatever, and they might get embarrassed and back down. Well, what do you say then? Like, you know, so it's like we give different scenarios to make sure that um, the family or the parent role in that conversation is as supportive as possible and sets the young person up for success. Um, and, and also just letting them know that they do have support there if and when, when they're ready for it. And when I've told people that I was going to be talking to you today, um, quite a lot of people were really surprised to hear that a, um, a porn platform would have a kind of sex educational um, project happening or umbrella um, thing happening. And I'm just wondering um, if you could speak a little bit to that as to the kind of what the motivation was to create the porn conversation from uh, the perspective of producers of pornography. Yeah, so um, Erica Lust, uh, as well as a producer and a director, she's also a mom. So she created this project originally with her husband, Pablo, and they did it out of concern for the younger generation, understanding that, yes, they were part of this um, ethically produced pornography, um, you know, revolution that was happening and were making porn, essentially, and are making porn, essentially. Um, but that, you know, typically the most easily accessible porn on the internet is free online porn from tube sites. And that's what young people are um, finding and using and looking at and more than young people, adults too. Mm. And they're learning about porn. I mean, about sex through this, these platforms. Because also it's coupled with the fact that sex education is just not readily available for a lot of young people in the world. And so it's, it's almost inevitable that they're going to come across porn, whether or not they're seeking it out or not either. And the internet is just this vast place. And we're not coming from a space of like fear mongering, like this is bad and dirty and evil. It's more of like a social responsibility of like, hey, this is here we understand that there are some issues with this. Um, this is what we think and the messages that we see that are being received in these films from the categories to the titles to the content. Um, and it's sending you messages and it sends everyone messages. And these are the messages that it's sending you. Misogyny, racism, violence, um, it, I mean, fetishization, of certain sexual orientations and races. And so being able to just become more mindful consumers is our main goal. Um, 
And I do think that it comes into play that I guess as, as a porn producer, porn director, feeling like, and a mother, feeling like um, there was a social responsibility here to, to create something that is, um, you know, nonprofit and, and just creating some sort of like an educational uh, movement. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd heard a, a quote, oh, I forget who it was now, but there was a thing about, um, you know, if you're not talking to your child about porn, and, and they're talking, you know, this is about the context of, like you're saying, the tube sites rather than um, sort of paid for ethical content. But um, yeah, if you're not talking to your kids about it, then, you know, if you're not talking to them about sex education, then porn is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, you, we're being super realistic, right? It's like, yeah, although there is ethically produced porn out there, no teenager is asking to use their parents' credit cards to access these sites. Like, it's very realistic that you're going to come across free online porn, um, as we all probably did. And so it's just more of like, well, here's what you need to know about it, rather than shaming and making someone feel bad for being curious and coming across it. And that's come up in a lot of the workshops that I've done, is the question of, like, would you would you buy your children or your child, your teen, uh, would you pay for it? And would you buy them the kind of porn you would prefer them to, to consume? And that's been a really interesting one in, in a room full of parents because it's sort of the initial thing where people are like, oh, no, there's no way I would do that. And then just giving them a minute to really think about it. And it's just that that idea of like the ethical choices that we make in the world. We make those choices in so many other aspects of our lives and, um, you know, apply it to so much of our parenting um it's really interesting to to think you know especially when we're talking about something that like you said is being consumed all over the world by you know so many people but we just don't want to talk about it whereas we're quite happy to kind of debate the ethics of you know the fashion industry or yeah uh, other online uh, you know social media or whatever it might be let's move on to this work so this is the artist uh leah schrager who i um have only just um learned about but i'm so fascinated by what she's doing um i've got a few different images she is a um a sort of performance artist in fact i shall read you the uh the line from her website she uh she situates her work in a contemporary hotbed of female inappropriateness uh and appropriateness arousal celebrity fandom and commercialization uh, she seeks to explore female biography and labor in today's global society. And she does all, um, she creates and markets and um, edits all the images herself. So she has a series um, here. This is Infinity Selfie, of which there's quite a few. And um, she also has an ongoing performance of uh, where she has this site, which is the Sarah White Therapist, the original naked therapy practice. And this is an ongoing performance um, where she you can literally have an interaction with the artist online in a zoom call i think essentially like this or through only fans and you have like naked therapy and she you can she can undress or she cannot and they can talk and there's a whole kind of ethos around it but it is really interesting because it's very hard to tell when you look at the website that it's not a real thing so to speak um, and then there's lots of kind of really uh, inflammatory articles on like the Daily Mail and stuff about like how preposterous it is that this person would be calling themselves a therapist. But of course, you know, right at the bottom of it, it's like, oh, she's actually a performance artist. Uh, she also does these really interesting sort of digital um, uh, like manipulated photographs and collages. 
Um, she uses apps to um, kind of alter these images that are all kind of, yeah, like very social media based. Um, this one I think is interesting too, Not Your Mother's Porn. Mm -hmm. And uh, another one from the series. This one, I love this one because I think you don't quite see it initially. Yeah. Um, and she also, uh, so she has an account online where she works as this uh, owner of the artist. It's there, um, where it is um, a set. This is called Tag the Model from the Exhibition. Um, and um, yeah, the, it's a, an entire account of kind of her, of this alter ego of owner of the artist, and she sort of talks about how it's sort of, um, she's self-objectifying herself, but it's and making a show of it, and she's doing it for herself, so that I find that really interesting, this idea of self-objectification as empowerment, because it's definitely a kind of narrative we were sold in the sort of early 2000s, late 90s, and I think it really plays into how a lot of us kind of feel about sex now, feel about our bodies now. Um, but m more than that, this work is like, it's so interesting because it's this real performance. When you look at her, um, the uh, Instagram and the media, social media she's created around this work, like it, you just, it's very difficult to know kind of what is sort of real and what isn't. I'm using the term real inverted commas, but you know, so much of it is performance, but then it's her, it's her body. She, she's using her body to um put it out online she's very naked in a lot of it the comments she gets back are very interesting and um and it's an ongoing thing where i think a lot of people would like you were saying earlier would be really questioning like is this porn or is this art you know if she is selling sort of essentially naked content on OnlyFans, is that porn or is that art or if she is having these kind of um sexual interactions with people through these um the naked therapist performances um and there's an exchange there you know is that sex work or is that art or you know is there any need to kind of blend the, the definite definitions or or not you know it's really really interesting and yeah. i think it asks a lot of questions about the role of technology here the role of social media here um and um yeah, the, the sort of language and things again, the the website for the naked therapist has, you know, all the stuff about the kind of benefits of the interaction and the language is very like professional seeming and there's all these photographs of her looking, you know, in her glasses and her um, uh, suit at a desk, or whatever, but they almost look like kind of stock Getty images or something. Um, yeah. So yes, yeah, so I guess this brings up the idea of like, what is the difference between sort of performance and reality in when we're talking about pornography and when we're talking about the benefit of seeing kind of real intimacy or real sex or um, real pleasure in our porn and the kind of, yeah, fine line between uh, understanding the difference, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's something that we that's really... Uh, what we try to drive home to with the use of porn literacy. So I guess I should kind of explain a little bit like what porn literacy is, right? It's, um, it's based on uh, five key questions and it, it's a, based on an old, old uh, educational framework called media literacy, which is understanding that every single media, including an Instagram post to a porn film, to an advertisement on know, a bus or TV, right? Um, has a message that it's sending you 
or, or practically sometimes multiple messages and, and it was created for a purpose. And so I guess like when we're trying to divide and understand reality versus the performance and the final product that you see in porn is we really want to make sure the consumer understands that um, there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes to make this final product that you see. And so um, that's why porn is, is not a really reliable form of sex education, right? Because at the end of the day, what you see is a performance, a final product that has gone through editing, gone through casting, gone through so many lighting to uh, makeup, to costumes, to everything you can think of to create this final product. Um, Understanding too that a lot of the porn films that I, I work on, because I only work with Erica Bless, mm -hmm. um, has very high cinematography val um, value to it. Yeah, absolutely, the production so like, is amazing. Yeah, like narratives and costumes and yeah. all the things that go behind it, which might be, which is more than likely a lot more than you'll see maybe on a free online tube site, right? Definitely. Um, but, but it's the same in either space in the fact that there's a lot that goes behind the scenes that you don't see as a consumer, but you need to keep in mind. Because these are paid performers um, that are there to um, work, right? They're sex workers. And so at the end of the day, um, this, everything that's, that's, that's creating this, this final product goes through many different stages from pre-production to production to post-production and just like your favorite Netflix series does as well right um so understanding that you're kind of following this narrative or following the story is wonderful because you do really probably get really into it and in the context of porn or erotic art it might turn you on or make you feel certain emotions and Maybe some are positive and some maybe not so positive, but it's really good to also be mindful of that. Um, but also remembering that there's a lot of aspects in the final product of porn that's probably not going to be so comparative to real life sex, right? So there's many different things we can talk about up here. We can talk about, I don't know, uh, from the length or the duration of sex, right? Yeah. Uh, typically, um, it won't last as long as what you see during a, a, a porn film. Um, I think it all can lead to a lot of unrealistic expectations for partners as far as what they expect from a partner, what they expect from themselves when it comes to their performance. Um, you know, they don't call it performance anxiety for no reason. Mm -hmm. um, so I think um, it just being more in tuned and understanding as far as like what goes on behind the scenes there's water breaks there's bathroom breaks we stop for lunch we you know move through the day like uh as i don't know if you're watching sex in the city right they do the same things it's like mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes on at the end we're creating a product that yes is sending a message hopefully a message of pleasure hopefully a message of excitement um, but also every single person who views a media message, whether or not it's porn or not, might receive it differently than others too, depending on their own identity. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's quite complex, but I think as far as, as you can just, 
become more mindful of the behind the scenes aspect of anything like this Instagram image or board film, you can become more in tune to the fact that this is fantasy, this is a constructed message, um, and reality is probably something a bit different than that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the more I go down this sort of journey of researching all of this area and looking at it, I just feel like it's it's really hard to separate porn and sex ed. Like I know, obviously, we're saying, oh, you know, porn, you know, tube sites and free porn has uh, replaced sex ed because we don't have great structures for sex education in, um, certainly in England and the US, and and I'm not entirely sure exactly, you know, in other countries, but generally we know there's a lack of of good sex ed available to people around the world and it's really interesting to think that actually there is a way to try and use pornography as a it's like i guess in a way the exactly what you guys are doing with the porn conversation to use it as sex ed in a funny way like it sounds it sounds a bit extreme but it's almost like there's no i don't know there's no other way there's no other kind of there's no other people having this conversation, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Um, it's really hard because I think there's too many or a lot of necessary but very difficult um, uh, sort of safeguarding issues around talking to children about these things, I, which I obviously completely condone and understand why they're there. But sometimes they can then end up being a barrier for educational settings or um, for our kind of more being more comfortable to talk about these things more generally and therefore hopefully then more comfortable talking about them at home with our families um yeah it's it's really interesting um and then also in terms of performative like the um what's interesting with an artist uh like Leah Schrager is this idea of the self-objectification as empowerment this idea of kind of having more autonomy over um the the way that they're portraying particularly like female um are porn performers or i guess you know if you're on OnlyFans or whatever you've got more um autonomy over the content that you're creating and what you're putting out there and then who sees it um but also this idea of yes yeah, subverting the male gaze and kind of flipping um that kind of convey about of of free gonzo porn on its head with the um like with representation with the power that comes through representation yeah let's see i'll go for the net the last one well i have two um artists okay for the same thing similar idea so this is uh marilyn minter who was a contemporary of betty Tompkins, um who has all these amazing sort of photographs um of um women uh well they're sort of blurry um showers lots of kind of close-ups of faces or a lot of water and moisture and steam and then like this with pubic hair um and she had actually a series this was a, a part of a series that was commissioned for playboy but that was then not used because they didn't like it they decided that it was like too essentially a bit too gross and they didn't like it so i thought that was quite interesting um and then with that i have teamed it with this one of my favorite images by the photographer uh, Maisie cousins who um 
I love because she does these really sumptuous images that are just these kind of mashups of different objects and uh, like food and fruit and kind of these girly, there's lots of kind of jewelry and pearls and flowers, but they're all kind of slimy and shiny and kind of um, a bit gross. And she has this great quote that I love, which is about, um, where is it? Uh, Nature is always beautiful and also disgusting. Even the most beautiful people leak, bleed and shit. And I just think this is a really nice opportunity to talk about the kind of messy realness of sex and how we shouldn't be afraid of it, how we can kind of celebrate that um, uh, with like intimacy is a, is a really wonderful thing. Um, and then also kind of celebrate, again, celebrating bodies, celebrating kind of the diversity of representation and pleasure. Um, and how, um, you know, it can, it can be easy to sort of go, oh, we can, we can talk and focus on the kind of the shame that comes with all the, the bad sex ed that we've had or our hangups about things. But what I really love about these images is their kind of beautiful kind of grossness in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what is the kind of really positive thing that can come out of that about being really real about, about sex, about pleasure, about our bodies, um, and um, even things like, yeah, you know, the politics of pubic hair can be a huge conversation. That's a whole separate podcast, but like, um, yeah, just kind of celebrating these things that we might have seen as, or have been told are quite kind of gross and unnatural, but actually there's nothing more natural than a, a curiosity about sex. Yeah. I actually, I, I feel like the, the ninth image, the one with the pubic hair, it was like the first thing I noticed when you had sent them to me before. Mm-hmm. I really liked it. I thought it was so good. And I feel like um, I'm, I'm not surprised by Playboy backing out on it, but I, but I also feel like Playboy itself as a company is going in a more slowly, more and more progressive space. I think everyone has to. I know we talked about Gen Z earlier, but they are way more progressive as far as like um as it comes to um body image and also um just overall not giving a fuck which is great yeah. <laughs> um so I think yeah this is a really good topic and it's something that we do dive into as well in the porn conversation which is talking about body image because I do think that's one of the huge huge messages that free online porn sends people as well anything from the size of a penis to bleached anuses to um, no body hair, period, anywhere, um, to, I don't know, vaginal rejuvenation, everything that you can think of when it comes to bodies um, is there. Um, and, And so there is this huge takeaway that I have to look and act and behave in a certain way um to I don't know be a sexual being to be deserving of pleasure um to also feel attractive or to attract others and that there is a certain reward that comes with that right and and this is a lot of the messages that I think young girls and women receive typically from free online porn um and so it's really nice to kind of play with this idea as far as like um you know, well, how can we still express ourselves in a way and see people who we feel are, um, I don't know, like myself or like the bodies or the identities that I would like to see in 
more mm-hmm. erotic spaces. And I think that's what a lot of ethical porn companies are doing at this moment. And I think absolutely. So if you think about like X Confessions, for example, that's one of the brands from Erica Lust. It's very queer and quirky and funky and it's um all everything it this is like what comes to mind when I see imagery like this. And so it's really nice to see porn that is representative of quote unquote real bodies, right? Real identities, people who are alike, um, the people who are consuming it or, or wish to consume porn that that is more relatable to themselves. And so um it's it's there's no shame and there's no one way to look or be or act to be sexy to be deserving of pleasure and I think that's something that um we are seeing more and more in erotic art we're seeing more and more in branding in general when it comes from clothing stores to um health sexual wellness products you can see it changing and shifting in the media um but there is something that does happen often on social media I know you've mentioned social media before um, and we didn't get too into it, but I think, um, you know, there is such thing as shadow banning that does happen on a lot of spaces in social media where, you know, I don't know the algorithm or who is behind it. Yeah. yeah. That there's one type of body or one type of way that is, um, acceptable to be and to present themselves online. So, so you might notice that a lot more, um, BIPOC, um, that, people will get shadow banned or there's taken yeah. down more or sex educators do um, more than a lot of heavily aggressively erotic uh, Instagram sites might or celebrities that you see post things. Um, yeah. So it's really difficult to kind of discern then, then what is right and who is deciding what's right and what's sexy and what's uh over the line, you know? And so it brings up a lot of kind of anger in me, (laughs) but also I think it brings up a lot of hope. And um, I think that we're gonna see, I think the social media space change. I think we're gonna see advertisement change, um, bodies change and, uh, or the acceptance of bodies change. And so, um, and the celebration of them too. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think as far as also another thing you brought up that I thought was cool was talking about uh, more about the last image than anything, which is, you know, sex can be messy and dirty and, and not always um, perfect. I use this with like air quotes, right? Perfect. Um, because I do think that's another thing that comes to mind too when people are entering their sexual debut or going through sexual relationships that there's a certain way to have good sex and there's a certain way to be and there's a certain amount of orgasms you're supposed to have or give and in reality sex can be awkward it can be funny it can be hilarious it can be messy it's not always perfect um just as long as there's consent and communication um there's no wrong way to do it in that aspect yeah, completely agree. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about the social media too. This, uh, you know, 
shadow branding is definitely a real thing and it's like when this the sex educators that i follow or even when i'm having to you know post stuff for the for this project it's like you have to learn a whole different language and you know spell things in a funny way so that the algorithm doesn't pick up the word sex or the pick up the word porn and you know you're kind of you know swapping out letters for numbers and you know symbols and things just to try and subvert that um so that people can have this really vital conversation online and it's only through having that conversation are we ever going to get anywhere we're ever going to you know move forward with it and that's the best you know the way that everybody can learn um so it, it it is sort of hopeful it's like annoying but at the same time i like seeing that people are just like well i'm just going to subvert it by doing this one thing and we all share those tips on like how to to make sure you know that uh your content is being shared or whatever it is it's like that kind of yeah slightly uh sort of rebel-esque sort of young punky way of getting around things <laughs> i agree i agree i think um you know it's we do what we can to stay in the spaces we believe that we belong in like social media mm -hmm. because if sex education doesn't exist on social media and it doesn't exist in our schools neither in our homes it's like well where do we go from here you know so um yeah I I just I'm really interested to see kind of like what's next you know I'm kind of over Instagram <laughs> and I'm getting over TikTok I'm like we need a space, a sex positive space where sex workers and sex educators and the like can, can join forces and, and just have a platform uh, to share information. Particularly, um, yeah, the conversation I think is so uh, online these days because of the pandemic as well. So, and, mm. you know, the more voices you can add to it, the better. Yeah, that, oh, definitely. Yeah, I think like, we're stronger together and exactly we need as many people talking about sex and porn and porn literacy and sex education as possible well you're doing an amazing job of spearheading that so thank you so much for your time today Abra. thank you <laughs> and feel better soon <laughs> thank you So if you'd like to learn more about porn literacy, you can check out The Porn Conversation at thepornconversation.org. They're also on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. And if you'd like to see more about Money Shot, you can have a look at mother.muva.projects on Instagram. That's all from me. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>